This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 552 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Cody Gandhi. Now, Cody is one of the members of the Echelon Front team. And in this conversation, you'll hear him discussing about a first responder-specific conference that's coming up. Well, since we recorded, they announced that it will be called Roll Call, and it will be on January 21st in Dallas, Texas. So in this conversation, we discuss Cody's journey into the Marines, some of the leadership highs and lows during his career, his transition out, and then ultimately into Echelon Front. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 550 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Cody Gandhi. Enjoy. Well, Cody, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. 
I appreciate it, sir. It's been, it's been a long time coming. Absolutely. I know you guys have been busy. Every time I was like, oh, I'm going to reach out. And then I'm like, oh, you're in, you know, wherever, Seattle or somewhere with the muster. And so I can see how busy you've been aside from being a dad and a husband as well. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just looked at our, our uh, messages and it looks like June 18th is when you reached out and it's uh, November 16th. So it's been it's been a long time. <laughs> There's been a few. I just had Wim Hof and I think I first reached out to him about four years ago. So you're actually sh- quite a short frame time, time frame compared. Okay. So, <laughs> All right. So the first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So right now I'm located up in Sacramento, California. So I was born and raised here. And then after the military, after school, return back home. Um, my wife is from the Bay Area, so we kind of, we thought what better way to return back to, to our kind of our core roots. So I'm up in Sacramento, up up far away north, away from kind of the craziness in San Francisco and LA. And I'm, it's nice because we're about two hours away from anything that you could ever want. So the snow, the beach, wilderness, whatever you want, we're, we're just a drive away, which is nice, especially with the minions in the other room. Right. Well, I want to get to your kind of timeline, but just from a perspective, because I heard you say, on um, the previous podcast I listened to um, that it was something like, despite what you think about California, it's still an amazing place. I go skiing, I go surfing. And that's the problem. I mean, I used to live in California, Anaheim. It is an amazing state. And some people, you know, may, you know, based on perspectives may have made it a little bit more challenging. But talk to me about you and your family's perspective of the last year and a half. Man, it's been crazy just with me working as well and being on the road so much, it's just put a lot into uh, perspective. Like you said, when I am home, we try to get out. So that's the benefit of California. But just with the, the politicalness, not only in the whole U.S., but in California in general, it's hard to want to stay here. So we've been talking about moving um, maybe to Texas or, or someplace else that's a little less, I guess, strict for lack of a better word. Um, it's just it's just hard with with having the kids and, and not being able to do stuff and for lack for lack of another better word is just the control um i'm not i'm not too fond of that and so we're, we're kind of in the works in the next two years of getting out but it's hard to be having family here because my both my parents live a couple miles from us my wife's family is an hour away so when i'm gone which i was just looking at my schedule from this last year i've, I've been in hotels for over 100 days and so it's hard for me to try to convince her like hey we need to get up and move from because of the state but having that that uh, safety net, those people that she can lean on when I'm gone, is it's tough to beat. And then just uh, the scenery. I have all my friends here. I grew up here. She grew up here. So it's a it's we're weighing, we're weighing a lot of options here, a lot of pros and cons. But I'd like to get out eventually. But until then, we uh we we love what we do here. We love California. We're going up to Tahoe this weekend. So I can't can't really get that anywhere else. So talk to me about life prior and just some of the challenges you're seeing now because i mean when i was in california like i said i i loved it i mean it was very expensive very crowded down in you know the orange county area but tahoe is beautiful you know mammoth and you know huntington beach and all these these places and i've been up into san francisco before also gorgeous so you know talk to me about the pros of growing up and living where you live and what are some of the challenges that have been brought on this last year and a half I mean, definitely the pros is um, just just location. Um, I got the Pacific Ocean. It's an hour and a half. I got Reno, which is 90 minutes. I got Tahoe, which is an hour and a half. Um, if I want to get down to San Francisco, I mean, there's always there's a lot of key destinations. I mean, people come to California for a reason. And so I think as a kid growing up, I mean, we were always driving down to L.A. I mean, it's an eight-hour drive, but you're getting down to Disneyland. You're getting to L.A. You're getting to San Diego. 
And there's all these top prime destinations that people travel from around the world to come to California. And so that was definitely a benefit growing up because my, my family wasn't the type to, to sit, sit at home. We were always doing something. We were always travel, traveling, whether it was with sports or just trying to get a family vacation with both my parents working. We always found time on the weekends to get out and do whatever we could. And so California, that was definitely a prime place to grow up. And I think just some of the challenge we've seen in the last couple of years is, um, I mean, man, everyone around us, I've had a couple of friends that in the fire service, they're moving back up near me and just trying to buy a house. It's they're getting 15 offers on a house and trying to compete with people coming over a hundred K in cash. And just the competition out here is, is pretty ridiculous because everyone's coming up from San Francisco because nobody wants to live down there, but everyone wants to work down there. And so there's just a lot of competition out here. But with that being said, there's a lot of people that are leaving just from the, the politics perspective not a lot of people are liking what the uh, um, what the leadership in the government's doing, especially in California. And so I do see a lot of people leaving, which is it does have its pros and cons as well, because it's it's leaving kind of a void for people to move up here. I mean, we've seen my area. Um, I live about 30 minutes north of Sacramento. It's exponentially grown. It's it's absolutely crazy. Um, and, and, and that's a good thing because it's making our home go up. There's a there's a lot of other places that we can go and visit around where we live. I mean, I'm pretty close to to cow country around here. I mean, my son who's four, he goes to a a farm preschool. So we drive down like an old river road and drop him off at a farm and he gets to play there for a couple hours. And you don't get that in a lot of places. And I think that's another reason why we're kind of sticking around for now. But I mean, it's, it's been crazy to see in the last couple of years, just the expansion and growth and also just the, uh, the kind of will from a lot of the people being resistant to to the change that is being being sort of forced from that from that top leadership. So it's 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 interesting to say the least to live in California right now. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I think it's just important that we get different perspectives, and I'll do the same when we get to the combat side as well. But you know, you get this polarizing uh, view on so much these days, whether it's war, whether it's police, whether it's vaccines, you name it. It's like pick a side, you know, grab a spear, kind of thing. Um, but just the the unseen impact of this last year and a half, of course, as as an absolute reality to the danger of this virus. But there is this ripple effect, this unseen element that is affecting so many lives. And I think, you know, here in Florida, we're very lucky. Government, Governor DeSantis has done a great job, I think, of just you know, analyzing and then making a plan, analyzing, making a plan. And he's being, you know, hailed as God knows what by a lot of places. But I'm very middle of the road. And what I've seen is very middle of the road leadership here. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I I grew up with a lot of um, support for Florida. I, I love all the Florida teams. I had a, a best friend growing up that loved the Dolphins and the Heat and all that. So I, I love Florida. I always wanted to move there. Now trying to convince my wife to move there is a, a different story, especially being all the way across the United States from her family. So Texas is my is my next best option. But if I could move to Florida, that would be that's that's on the list. Yeah, it's a beautiful place, but I mean, a lot of a lot of the U.S. is a beautiful place, you know. It's just based on the humans that are put in different positions. But I digress. <laughs> All right, we're well, starting with your timeline. Then you mentioned that you were born and bred in Sacramento. So tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Gotcha. So yeah, um, I grew up in Rockland. So that's actually the name of the town. I now reside in Lincoln. But I mean, growing up, uh, my father was he got into law enforcement when I was a, a couple years old. So this was when he was 30 plus years old, got into law enforcement. He's still doing it today. Um, almost 30 years later, um, he works down south of Sacramento 
And then my mom would stay at home for a little bit and then she got into real estate and she's still doing that for the last 20 plus years. So I grew up watching my parents work every single day and that, that, uh, I mean, at the time growing up, I really didn't think of anything of it. I thought that's just what parents do. And, uh, I'm about five years older than my little sister, my sister, Sam. Um, and so I grew up being the big brother and just watching my parents work and that looking back at it now, it, it really makes me appreciate what they did. I mean, at the time, I mean, nobody understands when they're younger, like what their parents are giving up and what they're doing, but I can remember my dad coming off double shifts, my mom working eight hours just, and they'd be at every single game of mine growing up. And I, I was a busy kid. I was, I was pretty good at sports. So I was doing baseball, football year round. And I don't think I can ever recall my parents missing a single game. And so that was, that was pretty neat to watch, especially just, I mean, the dynamics of the nineties, early two thousands of law enforcement is drastically different than what it is now. But I got to see a glimpse into what he did every day going on ride alongs, just being a part of that community. Because he, he worked where we lived, which was very unique. So we would go down to the station. My mom would always bring us over. And that gave me a, a unique perspective on what it was to be a law enforcement officer. And that and I mean, that that was my goal as a kid. Like my mission in my life was to be a cop. And I still part of me wants to do that. And going to Echelon Front's a little different now. But I think growing up, I mean, man, I, I really don't have too mu- too many complaints. I went to a kind of a, a middle of the road high school. I'm about 1,600 kids. Um, growing up, I had my my tight knit tight knit friends. Um, I wasn't very a social person as a kid, and I, I've always been that way. I mean, I could I could tell you stories about growing up where I would get kicked out of carpools with my with my friends because I just wouldn't talk and. I can remember at family dinners, my mom and dad trying to pull conversations at me. And so there's always been this anti-socialness about me. And I don't know if the military tried to change that. I mean, and now we're going to echelon front where I have to talk to people for a living. It's it's weird how the way the world works. But um, that was a little challenging for me. I mean, I kind of just, I went with the crowd, uh, had a lot of very um, friends that were outgoing and I was not. So it kind of forced me into that realm but yeah, very antisocial, very unemotional. I was kind of taught as a young kid, look, guys, men, they don't they don't share their emotions. And especially from a father who was coming from law enforcement who was a little stern, that was forced upon me. And and sadly enough, that sticks me sticks to me to this day. And the military obviously helped shape me as well. But um I think that's something I've struggled for a long time is being super, super unemotional, especially now with my kids seeing seeing the person that I am. But um yeah, I mean, nothing crazy about childhood sports. I was in it all the time. I uh, wasn't a big student. I kind of could get away with anything. I never had to study. I could just kind of show up, which is sad to say because I think I could have did much greater things if I had the discipline as a young kid. And I, I know what my parents were trying to do is they were trying to have some some self-impo- self-imposed discipline because them trying to be be the thumb and being that uh, person that forces stuff upon their kids, I mean, as you know, it, it doesn't really work out. So they kind of wanted me to cultivate my own discipline, whether it was with sports and whether it was with being a student. But that, that never clicked for me. And so um, looking back, I, I wish I had some more structure and some more kind of sternness in, in my upbringing because I think I could have went on a bunch of different paths. But that's, a, that's another, another story for another day. But um, man, high school, we can just fast forward to there, was really engulfed in sports. I, I wanted to play professional sports. Um, I thought I kind of had what it took. 
But again, I, I never put forth effort. I would kind of show up to practice, just walk through the motions and, and come through on game day. Um, but that, that was my whole life was sports year round. I had my sister who I didn't go to high school. She was in eighth grade when I was a senior. So we, we weren't really close. Um, we're very we're both very type A personalities. So we butt heads, as is my father. So there's three of us with type A. My mom's very passionate, very emotional. When I was in the military, she, she would cry every time we we're on the phone. So there's just this very extreme dynamic between the four of us. And um, I, I had a lot of influential people in my life as well. I had a lot of family members that were in the military. Both my grandfather served. And uh, that kind of changed my path later on in life. But if you ask me if I was 16, 17, 18-year-old, if I'd ever go in the military, the answer would be absolutely not. I wanted I wanted no part. I thought people that were going in the military – I was confused on why they would want to do that, why they'd want to do that service. And um, when, when I went to college, I had a couple people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, family members, friends from high school, just talking about the things that they were going through. And it really put things into perspective on my life because there I was. I just turned 19 years old. I just blew out my knee in college. My dreams of being a college athlete was over. And I, I went down a dark path with drinking and doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And I'm just throwing a pity party on a couch while people are literally dying overseas. And uh, I had those conversations and they're very blunt conversations about the path that I was going on and how I was being self-destructive and what what was going to be my contribution to the world. And at the time, it was absolutely nothing. And so after those conversations, I literally had surgery on my knee and I walked into the Marine Corps recruiter's office after a torn ACL, MCL meniscus. And uh, they were like, hey, we can't touch you for about a year. And uh, I think about four four months later, I left for boot camp. And the, the funny story, I think I've shared this before on another podcast about me leaving for boot camp. Is I really didn't tell my parents I was going to leave. They really didn't know that I wanted to join the military. <laughs> and uh, I got a call from my recruiter. I was supposed to leave in April of 2011. And I just signed my papers in September. And he was like, hey, do you want to leave in a couple weeks? So I was like, all right, let's do it. I, I wanted to get out of there. I, I was really driven to join. And uh, I remember calling calling my mom and telling her that I wanted to join, and she was trying to throw anything and everything at me to stay. Like, hey, well, I'll buy you a new car. You can move back home. You can do whatever you want. Anything that you want, I'll, I'll give to you. And uh, But my mind was already pretty much made up. And um, I don't recommend that for anybody joining the military, not to, to tell their parents that. Um, <laughs> but that, that led me to enlisting in the Marine Corps, and that was uh, October October 2010. Beautiful. Well, going back to a couple things. Firstly, the um, antisocial element, something I'd never even thought about until recently. A friend of mine talked about a book that he read. He himself as a firefighter went to a very, very, very dark path um, and was able to pull him out. Thank goodness it pulled himself out. But one of the big things was he was an introvert and he didn't really understand that. And he read a book called The Introvert's Edge and ended up having the author on here. And the author used the definition um, where you draw your power from is where, you know, what type of personality you are. So an extrovert needs to be in that crowd, needs to be on that stage. But I didn't realize that I was actually an introvert too, because I can be in crowds, like, like, you know, you can present in a crowd, but then I want to spend quality time on my, you know, at home on my own with my family, whatever it is. And that's how I level up. That's how I recharge. Um, but with Chad, my friend, not understanding why he was different, why he couldn't feel comfortable in, in these social um, engagements was one of the things that was actually detrimental to his mental health. So how did you process that 
feeling of almost being the odd one out when everyone else seems so at ease socially? Man, well, I hate to admit it. I So a lot of the situations growing up, whether I mean in high school and even in the military, just being that the, the introvert not wanting to be social, I would combat that with um, kind of just excessive drinking. And uh, I think that kind of brought out the the playfulness and the friendliness in me because, I mean, I'm very – I've, I've tried to explain this before and it's hard to say. I'm very like click based. So I have a core group of friends and I stick with them. We're best friends and I, I do anything for those people. And now everybody else, I'm very hard and very reserved. I, if I don't know you, I don't really want to talk to you. And that comes off very wrong. And I think whenever I'd be put in those situations where I'm super uncomfortable and I have, I have a best friend who's probably the most outgoing person I know. I work out with him. He lives down the road. The only person I've stayed connect with over the years through high school through military it's been over 20 years we've been friends but we are absolute complete opposites and he brings that out of me and so i would be in these super uncomfortable situations where i don't want to talk to people i don't want to get to know people i just want to be friends with my friends that i know and that i trust and so i think to bridge that gap to make me come out of my shell was was to drink and uh sadly enough i'm the type of person that that doesn't know when to stop and um, it was never uh, – I can't go out and just have, have a beer or have two beers. I was always like the crazy extreme guy. And I think that led me down other things that I wanted to always do the extremes. And so in terms of drinking, especially in the Marine Corps and the military, like your drinking is part of the culture there. And and that's okay to some extent but not the extent that I was doing. There's – man, there's there's stories just where I went off the rails. and but 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 that's what I had to do in order to – to stay in these conversations and be comfortable doing it because I, I I've tried in the past where I get put in these social gatherings and I'm, I'm trying to make friends with people and I just, I don't know how to do it. And so there's times when I I've tried to be sober, um, especially my, my early twenties and I would just end up leaving. I didn't know what to do. I'd try to gravitate towards people I knew. And when that didn't work out, I would, get uncomfortable anxiety would kick in and I just have to leave and so I found the only way that I could cope with it was by drinking to where those kind of guardrails came down where I wasn't reserved where I wasn't being protective and then I would open up but I it took me a long time almost 10 years to kind of find the balance of being able to be social being able to be social without being drunk all the time and being able to drink without being excessive and those are things that I had to learn on my own because I had a lot of people, a lot of leadership in the military trying to steer me in the right direction. But unfortunately for me, having that extreme kind of personality, I had to learn that lesson the hard way. And it took me, man, it's, it's, it's only been a couple of years when I've been able to kind of figure this, this game of life out in terms of social gathering and communication and stuff like that. But it, it's, been a, it's been a long, interesting journey on how to navigate that. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear. I had a, a few guests who said the same thing, you know, and it was alcohol that did it. And sadly, in several of those stories, that took them down crazy paths, whether alcoholism or one was a meth addiction. Now, I'm not saying that that's destined for everyone that feels awkward in a social space, but realizing that that's the kind of personality that you are and it's okay to be like, all right, I'm going to be here for this amount of time and then I'm just going to dip out, you know, and that was a really empowering thing for me because – yeah, that, that feeling like you need alcohol to be that kind of um, facade of the party person that you are is a very, very dangerous path to go down. 100%. Yeah. 
something I, I fought for a long time. <laughs> All right. Well, another thing just to pull out of what you said before as well, what your dad, the way your dad told you about manhood is something that I talk about a lot. And that was that generation, you know, pretty much all the officers and older firefighters when I entered the fire service were of that generation too. And, you know, they were raised on John Wayne, John Rambo, you know, you name it, these facades of masculinity that weren't actually real men at all. Um, now with you being a father and with him being deep into law enforcement where, you know, we're starting to talk about mental health in, in, in a real way now, have you had conversations about that perception? Has it changed the way that you've taught your sons? I mean, so my, so I have three kids right now and I have, I have one on the way as well. Um, so I've been gone for the last three weeks and, uh, my oldest just turned four, my middle just turned three. And then I have a daughter that's one and a half. So those conversations have been talked about, but not in the depth that they need to yet, just because their comprehension level is not there yet. Um, and I, I look at my kids and I look at the way I was as a child and I see a lot of parallels. I mean, when I grew up playing sports, at least till I was probably 10 years old, man, I would, I would cry. I'd be emotional after every single thing. Like I, I wouldn't want my parents to take me home cause I was super embarrassed. Every time I struck out during a baseball game, I'd cry. Every time I made a bad play, I would cry. Like, I don't know if people could run out of tears, but I'm surprised that I didn't. And, um, I think being so overly emotional, my dad tried to combat that with, Hey, like this is me. I'm not very emotional. I don't cry. And I saw that as a kid and I wanted to gear my weights towards that. And looking at my kids now, I mean, I'm still, I hate to say it really, really unemotional. I think majority of the arguments conflict that I have with my wife is that I'm, I'm not emotional whatsoever, um, to the point that it brings up conflict. So it's something that I, I'm fighting as well. But I, I see with my kids now, my oldest is, is he's, he's like me. He's, he's pretty reserved. He's pretty emotional. And I find times where I see him super upset, crying. And I, I want to kind of be like, hey, you don't do that. Like, you don't cry. And there's part of it, especially now, realizing that's not the way to do things is that, hey, it's okay. Let's talk about it. And I, I want to open him, him up to like having conversations about being upset rather than shutting down because that's the way that I grew up. And I think having an open line of communication, I mean, he's only four years old, but if I can help ingrain that in, hey, it's it's okay to be a, sad. It's okay to cry. Like, hey, let's talk about it. If I can get him on the path when he's four, maybe when he's 10, maybe when he's 16, then he'll still be okay having those conversations rather than shutting him down now because then I'm just, I'm setting him up for a life where he thinks it's, he thinks it's not okay to be, be emotional, which is completely wrong. Yeah. Well, I can say with mine being 14 and my, my bonus boy, my stepson being 20 now, um, it's very important that you do exactly what you said. I, I think and everyone, you know, is in charge of their own parenting philosophy, but that open line of, of, um, communication and, and like you said, explaining the emotions, you know, has absolutely factored into very open, honest conversations as a teenager. And he went, you know, he had a little time where he did go into a bit of a dark place himself, but he would talk to me and he would, you know, keep that going. So if I had ever told him, suck it up, don't be a pussy, you know, what would he have done with those emotions? You know, he would have just stuffed them down. And as we know, you know, those then become soldiers, firefighters, police officers that don't cope well with their emotions later on 100 percent, yeah it's uh and i'm lucky enough my wife is complete opposite 
I, I, I gravitate towards people that are very opposite of me. She's very emotional. She likes having conversations, which I am not. So when I am failing at, at opening up with my son, she's able to come in and, and guide those conversations. So I'm lucky to have that support system because if I was doing this alone, then I think my kids would be set up the same way I am in terms of, hey, we don't talk about it. You bury that and then we'll never talk about it again. But my wife is, is very good at having those conversations when I'm a little steamed, a little upset about him being sad over kind of the dumbest things, um, she's able to come in and, and help help kind of hold the line, which I think is great. Brilliant. Now, what made you choose the Marines? Um, so both my grandfathers were Navy. Um, and honestly, like I told you before, I, I never had any interest in joining the military. But so I knew nothing about the military. I knew my grandfathers were in the Navy. And that's that's pretty much it. I watched war movies as a kid and played Call of Duty, but that was my introduction to the military. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I used to um, like look at pictures um, and I would see the army wearing their their patches of the American flag. And I, I thought it was backwards for the longest time. Like that's how much I didn't know about the military. And I was like, wow, the army's the army's wearing their flag backwards. I don't want to join the army. <laughs> no one's uh, noticed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I had a couple. Uh, I had a cousin in the Navy, a cousin in the Air Force. Sorry, two cousins in the Navy. And I had uh, three friends that I was really close with that I grew up with that were in the Marine Corps. Um, I didn't have anybody in the army that I knew of. And so in the very harsh conversation was a buddy that was in the Marine Corps. And uh, I mean, 2010, there's a lot of recruitment for the military and pretty much all I was really seeing was the Marine Corps. Um, the few, the proud, that kind of stuck with me. And as I mentioned before, just not not really uh, being disciplined in sports and in school, I, I really was looking for a challenge, something that would make me put forth that extra effort. And so I, I kind of chose the Marines that way. There's no real lineage behind it or anything crazy it was just a couple conversations and right place right time that brought me to uh to the marine corps recruiting office in uh, 2010 now were there any things that you did specifically that when you look back helped you rehab so quickly from that knee injury <sighs> oh man um i uh i trained excessively so i don't know if i just broke down the scar tissue because I remember when I was in boot camp, my knee was not fully healed. Like it was, it was painful. I ran my first mile and a half at like twenty something minutes because I could barely, barely move my knee. Um, but something that I did, and a lot of people that I talk to now with knee issues, I call it bulletproofing your knees. So basically, you start up weekly, twice a week, three times a week, eventually. But you do like ten minutes straight of lunges, just body weight lunges, and it helps just get blood flow to that area. And uh, that was something that I did probably three times a week, like a month or so after my surgery. And it was extremely painful. But I think just getting the blood flow in the area helped. I don't know, maybe probably made it worse at the time. <laughs> but uh, I more or less just kind of forced my knee to cooperate. I mean, because once I was in, my that first run time was 20-something minutes. And then over time, I mean, the amount of exercise you're doing in, in the first initial training is pretty ex extensive. And I was I was the guide for for our platoon. So I was like the head guy. And so I was always doing extra stuff, extra work. And, uh, that kind of just forced my knee to rehab. It was either you're going to get stronger or it's going to break. And I was trying to test that limit. And so I don't, I don't really give that advice to people. Hey, if you just have surgery, go work out on it. That was what I did. Um, and luckily enough, it worked out for me. 
Brilliant. Now, what was the rest of boot camp like? Because you had a background in baseball and football. So aside from the knee injury itself, was it a big challenge for you? Or did you find your preparation was pretty good? I mean, I never ran long distance. So that was that was very unique. Um, I came in doing like five pull-ups because we didn't do pull-ups. And I mean, football, you're doing like compound lifts of squat. Like I could do that, but you're doing a lot of body weight exercise and stuff like that. And uh, what's what's very unique. So I mean, how it's structured is in the in the platoon, your first platoon, you have like the guide who's the number one person. There's like 120 people, then you have some squad leaders, and everybody's just filtered out throughout. So when you walk places, those are the people that are in front. Well, a couple weeks in, our guide, our number one guy, was at like a medical appointment or like that. And I don't I don't know what came over me, but our instructors was like, hey, someone go grab the flag because that's what the guide carries our big guide on. And nobody wanted to go. And I and I went and grabbed it. And for, I don't know what came over me because me being the introvert, I, I wanted no part of being in the spotlight. And um, so I went and grabbed it. And then for the next two and a half months, I was I was kind of the number one guy that was in charge of the platoon. And that gave me a lot of extra duties, a lot of spotlight where, hey, if somebody messes up in the platoon, that's your fault as well. And um, at times I hated it. Um, because I didn't really understand like, Hey, if the team fails, we all fail. I thought it was all about individuals, but as we learn, it's, it's more about the team. Um, and then it, it, it gave me a lot of love at the end because when, when you graduate as the guy, like you get to wear a different uniform, you get to march out and you get an award and stuff like that. And that was pretty cool for me to have my family come down and see all the hard work that I was putting in. And, uh, it really made me get out of my, my comfort zone because Every day, I'm the one that has to talk to the instructors. I have to get yelled at and a lot of stuff that I didn't like, but I knew joining that I was going to have to put myself out there and do stuff that I didn't want to do. And so I think right place, right time. And I kind of jumped at the opportunity and I, I never looked back. So it's interesting. When I when my first fire academy for Hialeah, uh, fire you know, orientation, I guess, um, it was a similar thing. I was chosen to be a squad leader and um, – we were not cohesive in any way, shape or form initially. And I remember giving like, oh, you're almost like excuses. Like, it's not my fault kind of thing. And getting dressed down and be like, well, you know, you're going to have to figure it out or you're going to be out of a job. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, so then kind of taking a step back, realizing, just like you said, the team element rather than the me element, um, we ended up becoming, I would say, probably the most cohesive unit that we had. And, you know, we all brought each other up. So... Obviously, you're working for a leadership organization now. When you look back, what are some of the things that you did right and some of the things you did wrong back in that boot camp role? Ooh, I mean, back those initial days, I was very much about myself. Um, a lot of a lot of blaming, a lot of other people's fault, not mine. I had no peace in this. Whereas people would make mistakes, and I'd be like, "Well, I had no part in this, so why why should I care? Why should I have anything to do with this?" Um, I mean, and that was probably the first couple of years, not not even just boot camp, but the first couple of years I was very self-orientated. Um, I only really cared about myself, which is not the right mentality to have, especially in a military organization. Um, some things I, I did right, um, man, it, it, it pushed me beyond words in terms of preparation, not only just for memorization of, of key terms and all the military jargon that you're supposed to remember, but I constantly wanted to get better because there was always people chomping at my heels to take over my position. Like you're not guaranteed to hold that position. It, it changes sometimes weekly where I, I've been in other classes after boot camp where you're going to different training schools and the leadership changes all the time. And so 
that that made me kind of put forth that effort where, hey, you're putting in that that 18, 20 hour day. And then when I'm done, because I can only do five pull ups, I'd hit the pull up bar or something like that. So um, I was thankful for that because uh, if I think or I think if I was just in that the classic role of just being in the platoon, I don't know if I would have gone and done the extra effort to to keep those kind of from taking my position. So I was thankful for that opportunity because it made me it made me become better at, at the end of the day. And uh, even though I look back in the moment, I I was a little pissed off about it because everyone's kind of just they want they wanted to they wanted to be in my position. Everybody's kind of pointing out my mistakes. And that was frustrating at times. Um, but it, it kept me on my toes and kept me disciplined. And that, that self-imposed discipline is what we talked about earlier that that forced me to kind of engulf in that which I think is super beneficial for anybody to have. Absolutely. So where did you find yourself deployed? What was your first combat deployment? So after boot camp, so I started off on the East Coast out in Virginia. Um, and then from there, so I was with a, a fast platoon, so fleet anti-terrorism security team. Basically, you just you go on a foreign relation tour, so you're working with a bunch of foreign militaries. We were down in Korea working with the Republic of Korea Marines, going up to Spain, um, Spanish Royal Marines, went to Cuba, went to Germany. I mean, we were we were all over the place working with foreign military. Um, and then I was in Spain in 2012 when uh, Ambassador Stevens was killed in the Benghazi attacks, when all those embassies started to go crazy. So then we were actually the first guys to help resecure that embassy um, after after that incident on uh, on September 11th. So, um, and then after that guy, we uh, I pushed out to Hawaii. So I, I lucky enough was able to get out of Virginia and move to Hawaii. Um, got stationed on Oahu up in Kaneohe Bay with a second battalion, third Marines. And then I went back to Japan again in Okinawa, just doing um, the, the Japan mission, I guess. And uh, that's when I decided to get out because we were gonna go back to Okinawa again. And that's something that I didn't want. And for me, I got promoted a couple times and I was kind of in an admin role. So I was I was a platoon sergeant at the time, which I was promoted into because we didn't have leadership there at the time. There's a lot of admin. I wasn't really one of the guys anymore. I was kind of the guy pushing paper, making people do things that they didn't want to do. And that's when I when I decided to get out. So to bon- Benghazi then, excuse me. Um, obviously, there's a lot of emotion behind the fact that that shouldn't have happened in the first place. But just from your lens, when you went back to secure it, um, you know, what was that? What was that perspective? And what, again, what were some of the things, regardless of politics, that were done right and that were done wrong? So that was, I was, I think I was 20 years old when that happened, 20 or 21. So I, uh, I really didn't know what was going on. I remember being in Spain and we'd get a lot of, uh, just called action. So we'd go get staged. They'd be like, Hey, we're going to go here. We're going to go here. But it was always a test, um, just to see kind of our response time. And then I remember we were watching kind of the news cause it wasn't just Benghazi that happened. There was a couple of embassies, American embassies that got attacked and we're watching this and it's, it's like 12 o'clock, 1am in Spain. Like, Oh, this might actually happen. And then we got recalled. We're trying to gather as much information as we can, but being 20, 21 years old, I was a E3. I got E promoted E4 on that on that deployment. I really didn't know kind of the what or the why behind it. Um, it was more so, hey, we're gonna go here. We're gonna help resecure that embassy. So we pretty much landed um, about six hours after we got called. 
Um, we pushed down to gather all the people that escaped the embassy because there was nothing left there. It was just a kind of burning r- rubble pit. And so everybody that was at the actual embassy needed a place to stay. So we helped resecure kind of a new neighborhood. And we stayed there for a couple months while they came in and basically made a brand new embassy from scratch. I mean, looking at it now versus looking at it then, there was a lot of calls for calls for help during that time. And I think leadership not really knowing the extent of what was actually happening in Benghazi at the time, they didn't they didn't have the proper perspective on, hey, these guys actually need help. They need reinforcements. We need to just send a couple more people because there was multiple times where people reached out like, hey, something's going to happen. Like we need more people, et cetera. And those answers were, were or those calls were never answered. And so I think just from a leadership perspective, there was not a lot of insight, not a lot of perspective on what was actually happening on the ground. Then obviously when the incident happened, you have people trying to um, people trying to voice, hey, what we should have done, what I could have done, all that what if scenarios because the incident actually happened. And so, I mean, it's hard though. I mean, I was 21 years old. I, I remember being on the airplane going over there and we had no idea what we were doing. We were on on the plane and we were changing from like low vis with like casual clothes to actual full kit. And we changed probably six or seven times because we had no idea what we were supposed to do. And the leadership was just getting conflicting word um, as we were approaching. And so being 20, I was extremely frustrated as long with the whole platoon because it's a bunch of 18, 19 year old kids that are getting to go overseas for the first time. And so I wish I would have asked more questions back then. But um Marine Corps being a very top-down organization, questions are usually uh, answered with because I said so. <laughs> so that made me not want to ask questions. Uh, but lucky enough for me, I, I was in a leadership position at, at that time. So I got to be in charge of a couple guys, which um, gave me some insight on the struggles of leadership. And that was kind of where my my leadership career kind of was born. Because um, after that, I was pretty much in a leadership role until I got out, which was extremely lucky for me to be in those positions. Well, I want to get to your transitions. That's always another very important discussion. Um, but before we do, you mentioned Korea, you mentioned Spain, you mentioned, you know, several different countries. Another intriguing perspective that I love to ask people is just when you go to different places, you realize that some people have really fucking good ideas that aren't in our country and that's okay. <laughs> so when you were working with all these different militaries, were there any whether it's within the military organization itself, whether it's conversations about life back home, but any different perspectives that you learned about other countries or other cultures that you thought was was an innovation that could work well here, the UK or, or other places that it wasn't being used? Yeah, so a couple things. So I tell people all the time because, I mean, when I was going to the places, I was a little frustrated because I didn't want to be going to Korea. I wanted to go to Afghanistan. And so when I went there, I had a really bad taste in my mouth and I wasn't really thankful for the opportunity I have. But what I soon was able to realize is it was very unique to see the different styles of leadership and how people, organizations worked. And I mean, I got to see through a lens of like 10 different countries. And so for me being 20 and being very moldable, I was able to see, hey, what these Republic of Korea Marines do, what they do successful, I would take for myself. What they did wrong, I would take that as well. And then we go to we go to Spain and I learned something new and we go all these other places. And so 
like my me being a Marine was actually cultivated from other countries. I would take what they did right. I take what they did wrong. And then I would kind of make it my own. And so looking back now is extremely thankful for all those unique perspectives because they have a lot of great ideas, a lot of innovative ideas that America is not really doing or they're behind on technology. So they're doing something else. And so um, it was extremely cool to be a part of the just those training cycles with the different militaries. And then also something that I mean, we talk about echelon front all the time is I got to see some of the uh, some people at kind of their lowest Um not 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 only in the military. I mean, there's some militaries where people are being forced in, um, just to see kind of their their way of life. It makes you really appreciative of, of what you have for, or w- what you have. And I think, um, I mean, we say this at the FTX all the time, like, hey, your worst day is somebody's dream. And uh, I was able to actually see that in real time. Um, with just the different countries, just the poverty, some of the third world countries we went to and able to see what people are actually going through. Just, hey, I, I literally just all I want is water and I'll be happy. And like I look at it now and I'm complaining because I just bought a new car and I can't get the new sound. It, like It's just ridiculous on what people complain on now, especially me. I complain about stuff all the time. I come up with excuses all the time. And there's there's no place for that when I look back at, at what people are actually going through especially nowadays what people are going through throughout the world is, man, I, I need to be appreciative of what I have and, and what I actually get to do. Yeah, well, that's such a great uh, perspective. And thank you, because it's two key tenants that I think are not missing, but have found found their way off the path a bit, which is humility. Yeah, this we hear this kind of mindless statement, America's the greatest country in the world. I disagree. Firstly, it's not a competition. And secondly, there are countries all around the world doing amazing things. And if we all knowledge shared, we would all be amazing countries you know what i mean but if you just beat your chest and then turn on the football game you're not automatically going to make your country better um and then gratitude i agree with you completely like understanding what we have forget even the material elements just looking out how beautiful this country is as a whole you talk about california you know and florida and all these other places um to understand that you woke up in a country that isn't experiencing genocide or civil war even though it might appear so on tv um, you know, it is, uh, is an amazing thing. So yeah, I think humility and gratitude, I think are huge, huge tenants that, that need to be revisited. 100%. And that's kind of some of the, the focus I have with, with my kids, especially with them coming of age is those are two big things that I want to focus on because like you said, that's, that's a big part of the world that, that we're missing is, is those two key things. So that's something I want to focus on making sure that my kids understand that. So talk to me about your transition out. I mean, I know you were in for five years, which isn't the, the, the longest career. However, the thing I've heard over and over again, whether it's military, police, fire, um, is it's very easy for us to identify as a Marine, as a firefighter. I know I'll always be a firefighter. You'll always be a Marine. But as far as like that's all you are. And so when a lot of these men and women transition out, there's a struggle. You know, they lose that identity, they lose that tribe, they lose that purpose. So what was yours, your life? Were you, were you ready by that point, as you mentioned, about not really want to be pushing papers? Or um, did you find yourself kind of wayward again for a little bit? So this was August 2015, and I was ready. <laughs> um, so being in Hawaii, I had a, a very close friend that I actually went to boot camp with, and he was the only person we stayed with to Virginia to Hawaii. He was from Texas. 
and uh, we wanted to go to school. Um, I One of the benefits of joining the military is you get college paid for, and I really wanted to take advantage of that because I didn't have the opportunity growing up. If I wanted to go to college, I was going to have to pay for it by myself, and so it was just an opportunity I wanted to take advantage of. So being in California and Texas, we decided to meet in the middle and go to Arizona. So I went to Arizona State. Um, man, and yeah, when I got out, I was extremely thankful for being out. Um, I look back now and I, I, there's part of me that wishes I was still in, but I mean, when you're trying to get out and that's all you could think about, yeah, when you get out, you're super excited. I wasn't really lost initially. Um, cause when I got out, I kind of had a purpose. Um, I was going to school. I mean, that was relatively easy for me cause there I was 24 years old going to school for the first time and, uh, just competing with 18 year olds who, their priorities and their vision on life was extremely different than mine. And so, and a lot of, a lot of my stuff was, Hey, just putting towards effort and just being in the Marine Corps. I knew how to do that. And so I kind of breezed through school. Um, I got my bachelor's in two years. So I was, I was grinding away. I went year long. I was doing 20 plus credits. Um, I, I never took a break cause I just wanted to get done. I wanted to go into law enforcement. That's, that was my goal. And so I wanted to do that as fast as I could. Um, and when I got out too, I had just broken up with, uh, a girlfriend out in Hawaii. I kind of wanted a fresh start going to school back in Arizona. And, uh, lucky enough for me, I met my, my wife now a couple weeks in. Um, I actually, I lied my way to getting a job at a restaurant. I'd never been in the restaurant industry ever. And I, uh, I made up a story about how I was a server back in the day. And then I joined the Marine Corps. And so I got a job at Yard House out in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met my wife at the time. And um, yeah, I mean, the the struggle didn't come until after I got I got married or I guess actually the whole dating process was a little bit of a struggle, too. So my my why my mission was to go to school and I wasn't going to get into law enforcement and I I look back and when I was dating my wife, so like I said before, me and my wife, very drastic. So my wife's actually Mormon. I'm not. And so there was a very combative relationship between her parents and me. Um, she has four sisters and all of them are married to people in the church. And there is my wife marrying me, the tattooed, foul mouth, drinking Marine. And so... For over over a year and a half that we dated, um, it was it was kind of a struggle because they didn't like me for their daughter, rightfully so. I look back now and I I uh, realize that I handle things pretty poorly. I was I was pretty pissed off at the situation. Um, there's a lot of conversations had where I look back and I I'm not really happy with how I I dealt with them. I mean hindsight's always twenty twenty, but when I was in the mix trying to convince my wife to pick me. It was, it was, it was tough. And being unemotional, it wasn't tough for me, but it was tough for me to see my wife Paige go through kind of just the gauntlet of things where she's getting pulled a thousand different ways, getting texts, getting phone calls on, Hey, like you need to pick your family over Cody and all these things. And that was extremely hard to watch. I mean, we broke up a couple times. Um, and it was to the point where we were going to have to decide like, Hey, like, we're either going to um, elope or we're going to break up or like, what are we going to do? We knew we wanted to get married, but it was never, I don't think it was ever going to be okay. Um, and then we actually got pregnant with our, 
our first firstborn there. And that kind of changed the tides. Um, once we got pregnant, it basically, it was okay to get married now. Um, which looking back, I really didn't understand. And, uh, we got married a little bit after that, but that was, that was definitely my first initial struggle after getting out. Um, I mean, and her parents, they had all the right in the world not to like me. I mean, I was 24. I was just, I, I was going to Arizona state. I went to Arizona, Arizona state because I wanted to party. And so there I was dating their daughter. And so I was not in the right mind space or having those conversations. I look back now and I, it's a little foolish of, of the things that I didn't say, but that was my first initial struggle. And then once we got married, um, we decided to move back to California. My parents were, were getting divorced and, um, my mom was having a really hard time. So we actually moved back in with my mom as my parents were splitting up and, um, there I was trying to hold all the pieces together with my mom being super emotional, my sister being lost with everything she's known as a child is, is, is crumbling down and me being unemotional, not knowing how to handle all these pieces because everybody's looking to me for to be the voice of reason. I'm the, I'm the newly just got out of the Marine Corps, this, this leader in the military, and everybody's coming to me to handle all these problems. And so that was kind of my second hardest challenge because not only was I being kind of the post for my mom and my sister, but I was the bridge between my mom and my dad. Um, so that was a little tough. And so while we were living with my mom at the time, I just finished school. We just moved back. I wanted to go into to law enforcement. And uh, man, we were we were really low on money. I was I, I look back, if, if we weren't staying with my mom, I don't know what, what we would have done. Um, Sadly enough, when, when I transitioned out of the military, there wasn't a lot of like education on what happens when you get out. And so I more or less was like, Hey, I'm a Marine. Like you should give me a job. Like I was very entitled. And sadly enough, I wasn't getting a lot of opportunities. And so I ended up working at, um, a, uh, fire restoration business where a lot of the people I worked with were like ex cons, people that I had no business running with and nothing on them. Like they, Rightfully so, they deserved a place to get back in, in the workplace. But I was surrounded by people that had made a lot of bad decisions, and that was kind of leading me down a path that I didn't want to go to. And we were we were extremely poor. I was making like five hundred dollars every two weeks. I was trying to cover my bright orange Dodge Challenger car payment, which I had no right owning at the time. And um, to put this into perspective, just so my son Bear turned one, and we went to go buy him a present. And uh, we got a coupon from, you ever heard of Build-A-Bear? You like make a teddy bear for your kid and stuff like that? Yes. So it, it, you get a free bear. And my son's name is Bear. I was like, perfect. We had no money. So we went to go to Build-A-Bear and the tax, because the bear is free, but you have to pay for tax and we couldn't pay it. And the lady lucky enough was like, hey, like I tried to swipe my card, everything, trying to swipe everything, nothing would work. And she finally just let it, let it, let us have it. And that that's when I was like, shit, like I am not doing things right here. I am, I'm struggling for everybody here. Cause I was the breadwinner. She was watching bear. My next son was on the way, so she couldn't work. And so I was trying to bring in all this $500 every two weeks. And, um, I wanted to get in law enforcement and it wasn't really panning out. The process was taking way too long. So I was, I was really stuck and I didn't know what to do. Um, my parents were trying to sell the house. And so there was just the world around me was crashing down 
and there I was trying to support everyone while making a little money. And uh, that was kind of like the destructiveness started to settle in. I didn't know what to do. And uh, when you don't know what to do, you make a bunch of wrong decisions. And um, lucky enough for me, that is when JP Danell from Echelon Front reached out. I've known him for a long time. And he asked me to come see the training in late 2018. And kind of the, the rest is history for Echelon Front. But without that conversation, man, I don't know how much longer we, we could have struggled without doing 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 God knows what in order to make ends meet. Yeah, well, thank you for that sharing that story because I think it's it's important. You know, we have veterans that end up on the street. We have veterans that end up, you know, sadly taking their own lives because, as you mentioned, you know, yes, there are two sides of the story and ownership. Obviously, you know that more than anyone is, is a very important factor, but the environment to create success is also the other side of the equation. You know, and if we are, you know, take the Vietnam era, you know, those poor men and women coming back and have had, you know, Major Capers, one of the most famous Marines being pissed on while he lies wounded on an, on an airport concrete, you know, I mean, just disgusting. And then we wonder why we have, you know, some of the issues that we have now with that generation. So, you know, setting our men and women out up for success that have, have served, that have given, and their families have given for so many years, I think is so important. And I'm not in the military. I don't know who does it right and who does it wrong. But that transition seems to be an area that I'm assuming most branches could do even better to make sure there is that that transition of that incredible skill set that then goes into, you know, another occupation versus you find yourself, you know, putting plywood on burnt out houses for a living. Yeah, 100%. And I think, I mean, talk about ownership. I mean, I was definitely given the opportunity to take advantage of the resources on getting out. And I mean, I'm like 60 days from getting out of the military. I want I want no part of what they're trying to teach me. So they definitely have resources available. Now, is it communicated properly to where a 23-year-old knows what to do with them? Like, hey, you're going to get out and you're going to have to go to college and figure out that whole process. And then, hey, if you have a family, you're going to have to figure that out. Healthcare, the VA, disability, all this stuff. There's a lot of information that gets fire hosed at you within 30 days of, of, of getting out. Now, they've definitely made some drastic changes in the last six years since I've been out because I still have buddies in, but they're trying to fix that gap, which I think you're, you're absolutely right. There is a gap with when you get out. But I think, uh, for the most part, it's, it's finding like your new mission because most military people, they're very driven. I mean, in the military, you know, you know, like why you're doing what you're doing. And when you get out and you're lost, you don't know what you're doing. That's when you, you make mistakes. That's when you go down those dark paths. And so until I was actually provided the opportunity to come along echelon front and then I knew my mission, that's when I was lost. So that shoot three years, I was, I was lost for a little bit. And luckily enough, I had Paige, my wife there to, to be my rock, um, and keep me focused at, at my goal in hand, which was just supporting and being there for my family. And then eventually when echelon front came around, just man, right place, right time. And luckily the, the stars aligned for me to get the opportunity that I was given. Beautiful. Well, I know we met in Orlando briefly. And like I said, before we start recording, I actually missed your presentation because I had a migraine and was sleeping in my car. It's one of the blessings from my mom. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I can't even say like, wow, your presentation was amazing. I'm sure it was. Everyone else's was incredible too. Um, so what did that look like? You know, why... Why did they choose you? I mean, because I mean, obviously they know, I would say more than a handful of military people. So what was it that made you the right fit for Echelon Front? And then what kind of role did you take initially? 
So initially, so JP Donnell, I've known for a long time. He grew up in Sacramento as well. So we crossed paths many times. He's, I want to say eight or nine years older than me. So as you know, I just have a younger sister, so I never had an older brother. He was somebody I always looked up to. Um, he actually came to my boot camp graduation. I have a picture of him. It's He was 10 years in the SEAL teams, and I was fresh, brand new Marine. And it's a pretty cool picture. Um, so when I got out 2018, I'm going through backgrounds at Sacramento Sheriff and, um, he reaches out for me to come see the FTX. So the field training exercise part of echelon front, which is basically all the principles we teach, but it's the practical application and me making $500 every two weeks. I'm like, this sounds, this sounds nice. Like I actually get to make some money. I get to travel, which I hadn't traveled in a long time besides my time in the military. And so I kind of was chomping at the bit. Um, he gave me, he recommended the book extreme ownership, which I did not read because as you know, Marines can't read well. And so I, <laughs> I, I blew that off sadly enough. Uh, but I came out to Michigan in 2018 and I don't do the cold. I mean, I lived California, Hawaii, Arizona. I lived in those places for a reason. And so when I went to Michigan, it was absolutely miserable. And in my mind, I'm just there for a paycheck because I know when I get back home, I'm potentially going to fulfill my lifelong dream of becoming a police officer. And um, when I got there, the FTX was really, really new. And so JP was just trying to figure everything out. So he invited a lot of his friends to come help out with the program. But JP is doing everything. Like he's coordinating all the logistics, booking all the travel, working all the guns, working all the scenarios. And then you have I think there was four or five of us that came out just to be role players. And so that was my first kind of introduction, excuse me, to the program was just being a role player. And when I came out, little did I know that it was it was sort of a test um, to see kind of who would take on the principles, who would take ownership, who would kind of just take charge of some things. And uh, just coming fresh out of the Marine Corps, I, I knew what that looked like. And so I kind of chomped at the bit just taking anything I could off of JP's plate. I mean, you're talking like very little things that require no responsibilities. Like, hey, you want me to charge the guns? That's easy. I can charge the guns. You want me to take the radios? I can work on the radios. All these little things. I knew that he shouldn't be doing those because he had one million things going on. Um, and so at, at first it was kind of a fight to take things off JP's plates because it was, it was his program and he had everything to lose. I had nothing to lose besides an opportunity. But it pretty much it took we were there for a week and um, watching the relationship between corporate America. I mean, you're talking this is a gas and electric company, union people who are stubborn, stuck in their ways. And now you're having military stemmed combat leadership. Those typically you don't think would align. But to see throughout the week, because after every run, they're doing debriefs and they're talking through like, oh, hey, in this situation, I we came up with a, a really complex plan. I actually see this at work. And when I saw just all these light bulb moments and you're having people that didn't want to be there by the end of the training, like, wow, this was the best training I ever went through. I knew like at the end of that week, I was like, I want to do this full time because I knew if I was able to just be a role player on that team, that opportunity was probably going to go away. I knew I could potentially go back into law enforcement one day. This opportunity was, was going to go away. And uh, so I came back again in December, I believe, of 2018 for a couple more weeks. And that's when they offered me just a, a, a part-time role, just being on the FTX team. So I started slowly just being a role player. Um, and then I came in charge of just all the scenarios, all the logistics. And then over the course of the last couple of years, 
um, trying to push JP out to bigger, broader, more strategic things um, to the point where uh, myself and other instructors can help run the FTX and, and JP not even be there, which is what we did a couple weeks ago. So it's been a it's been a long process. I mean, the program has grown extensively. Um, so I think January 2019 was my first like actual official full time day. Um, and then nowadays, just uh, I guess my title would be leadership instructor, FTX operations manager, manager, and then our first responder training lead. So it's been a it's been a unique process. Um, I would consider myself one of the luckiest people in the world because I get to go on these trips with people that have five times, six times of my experience, older, wiser, more information in those heads than I could ever dream of. And yet I have those people ask me what I want to do, what are my thoughts, and it's a it's a it's a rich, rich environment for learning. And so Everyone always says, like, surround yourself with people that are better, stronger, faster than you. I get to live that every single day, and that makes me a better person, I feel, um, every time I go on a work trip. Beautiful. Well, I mean, just listen to you kind of walk us through that as well. That screams decentralized command. And, you know, I'm not trying to spit, you know, echelon front buzzwords at you, but it's, tr- it's something that I see, sadly, is is rare in the fire service where there's a lot of egos and some of the ranks and therefore a lot of the micromanaging versus you get someone you train them appropriately you trust them and then you let them run with it whether it's jamie that was on telling her story of, of entering with a very different you know kind of road that she took or yours or jp's or dave burke's i mean everyone that comes in it seems like once they had proven themselves they were allowed to you know to run with whatever kind of element they have and that that's it's really good to hear because yes, you can stand on a podium and talk about leadership as many, many people around the world do, but it's a different thing hearing all these stories of all these different kind of legs of the stool of people that are actually experiencing from the ground up that same philosophy within Echelon Front itself. Yeah, I think that's one thing that, I mean, we're, we're forced to do. I mean, if we preach it, we, we have to live by it. And I think I mean, you can talk decentralized command, you can talk extreme ownership, there's nothing better than being part of an organization that that lives by what they're what they're teaching. I mean, you can talk about extreme ownership. JP's in Texas, and I have other people on the team. Nobody's located in Sacramento, but I'll make a mistake here at my house, and they will take responsibility for that thousands of miles away because they actually feel that they played a role in me making that mistake, and that is extremely encouraging because I know that I can make decisions, and then the hammer's not going to be dropped when I make a mistake, and so when you have that culture, when you have that environment, there's nothing left except for growth, and I think that's a, it's a great place to be. Absolutely. Well, when I went to the muster here in Orlando, um, Marion County, the local fire department here, sent several of their chiefs. Um, which was incredible to see. They've also opened their own fitness facility, which is also incredible. So they're a very aggressive, progressive uh, department. If I could just get them to reduce their work week for their firefighters, it'd be even better. Um, but, you know, I've got to see and you know, I got to work in fire departments from the East Coast and the West Coast from, you know, very, very poor to, I would say, one of the highest budget that protects one of the biggest theme parks on the planet. So a pretty unique kind of gypsy view on the fire service. Um, with you having a background in law enforcement, with having experience as a Marine, um, what were some of the challenges that you started hearing and seeing with the first responder professions specifically coming to Echelon Front? Gotcha. So yeah, the I guess the first I'll just talk about how it was born. So when COVID hit, um, we kind of flipped the script. 
And I mean, because we're doing keynotes, workshops in person, and you can't do that when COVID first hit. And so we transitioned everything online. And we were just trying to find new ways to get the message out, more exposure to the world on extreme ownership, laws of combat, dichotomies, et cetera. And um, Jocko and Leif, for a long time, have wanted to get into the first responder world, but just having a small team and not having enough bandwidth, that was never just able to kind of get moving. And um, Leif kind of talked to me about just just getting the word out, getting exposure. I mean, and it started with just hosting a one day a month, a free webinar for all first responders where we're walking through the book chapter by chapter. And it's just it's just free training. And I mean, my basic role as a training coordinator was just to get the word out. So I'm just emailing just random departments throughout the U.S., creating emails, just talking to people, just just to get them over to the website. That was my first goal. Um, and so that was that was the hardest one right off the bat because I know there's a little friction between, hey, you're not first responders. Who do you have, or why do you have why do you think that you can you can talk to us about leadership because because you don't know. Um which is funny because I think, I mean, we we work with just businesses throughout the U.S. I mean, you're talking tech companies to gas to finance, whatever. But I think the one we closely align with is first responders in general. So I think there's always going to be that friction point. Um, so, I mean, at first it started out with that just that one day a month, which we're still doing. And then eventually it came to the point where we're trying to redo the roll calls. So the roll call is basically the muster, but just for first responders. I don't know if we're keeping that name. Um, but the goal is 2022 to go to a different state each month and set up a first responder conference where it would be first responder theme and talking more specific examples that tie to directly what you do, not just the broad business examples. And so we have our first one coming up in Idaho next month, and then we're going to Texas up in the Fort Worth area in January. And so that's been the biggest thing that we're trying to do right now is just to gain interest in departments, cities, states throughout the U.S. that that have the demand for us to come to and um, just getting the word out. I mean, exposure is, is the name of the game and Echelon Front does have a great reach, as does Jocko, as Leif and most of the team. But I think just the word of mouth in the first responder community has been extremely powerful. I mean, we've seen these just the free Zoom calls where the first one we had like 20 people to where we had Jocko on one, I think last month and it was close to 800. So it's taken some time, but we're definitely seeing some traction there. But I mean, the ultimate goal, I mean, if we had a mission was just to give back to first responders, that's, that's really all we care about. So that's kind of the angle that we're trying to take. Yeah. Well, I think that's one thing that surprised me when I started interviewing a lot of the special operations community was the respect that they had for police and fire and EMS and, you know, associated professions. And, you know, there's always this kind of, I think, adoration somewhat from everyone outside those communities for them. And when the kind of curtains pull back and like, no, we're just people who take our job incredibly seriously and we train and we we hold our physical fitness to the standard, our mental resilience. And you realize that, yeah, they are, you know, very, very similar to police, fire, EMS and other professions where lives are on the line. Um, and I think that the, uh, like I said, the perspective on the physical fitness, for example, you know, when you look at a Navy SEAL, you don't see a fat Navy SEAL or an SAS operator or, you know, an insert special operations here or a Marine, you know, on the front line. Um, but yet their minds are blown when they realize that we don't have fitness standards in police and fire a lot of times. And the fit uh, responders that you do see more often than not, that's 
despite the department, not because of the, the department. So I think that, you know, the fact that there's even a request for buy-in from fire and police and military, those two kind of crossing over is, is ridiculous because when you take a step back, we all do the same job. We protect lives and our training and our physical and mental fitness are, you know, completely linearly connected to whether we succeed or fail. Yeah, and I think, I mean, now there's probably a little more, um, I guess, buy-in on the physical fitness standards in the first responder world just because the last couple of years you've seen just what happens when you're not capable of actually doing your job and people attacking, whatever the case may be. But I also, because I have to take a step back and look at it from a leadership standpoint, when you have a community where it's really hard to recruit right now, because, I mean, face it, not a lot of people want to be first responders right now with, with the backlash. It's hard to draw the line on physical fitness when there's so many other priorities that you have to take over and, and deem higher than that. So I see both sides of it. I, I definitely agree that, hey, there needs to be a line. People need to, to hold themselves accountable. They need to be physically fit because, hey, it's a demanding job. But there's also a lot of priorities that in a place where it's hard to recruit and now you're going to try to force people to, to f- meet these standards, um, it's hard to balance that out. And I mean – Obviously, the ultimate goal here would be just some self-imposed where people want to become more fit. They want to practice jujitsu. They want to be ready in case anything does go down. But that's that's hard to do, especially when you have someone that's 10, 15 years on the job and they've never had to do those things or they've never been in a fight or whatever the case may be. They're like, why do I need to do that? So I think if if we can draw the parallels, I mean, you see nowadays where Social media is absolutely everywhere where you see first responders being taken advantage of because they don't know how to deal with a aggressive person. They don't know how to fight on the ground. I think the more that we can share like, hey, you practicing jujitsu will actually save your life. Look at this example right here. I mean, we used to do that in the military all the time, showing why we're doing specific safety protocols. Um, you're showing that and a lot of the safety measures that you have in place, a lot of the training that you have set in place, there's always a name behind it. And I think if we can draw those parallels that will make people want to buy in, which I know is extremely tough to do. So with, with the responder community, when you've been working the last two years, what are some of the challenges that they are reporting to you as far as leadership within our professions? I think first and foremost, you have recruitment, which Rightfully so. And I think um, at least a lot of the conversations I've had lately are people seeking motivation because you have a lot of people that they're getting burned out. They're not being appreciative um, just with the climate that's going on right now. So a lot of people seeking out discipline. And I I really try to steer that conversation away from discipline or sorry, I need to backtrack, not discipline. People are seeking motivation Um, because with the burnout, with everything going on, people want to be be motivated. And so I try to steer it away from motivation because motivation is fleeting. Motivation is going to last. Like we talk right now, and sure, you're going to be motivated for the next 12 hours, the next week, next two weeks. But talk about sustainment. That's not there. You're going to fall back to what you're doing. You're going to be back on the path of making bad decisions in no time. So I think the more that I can steer the conversation from motivation to discipline, that is when true change, that is when true culture actually starts to shift. And so that's what I hope to build out is some kind of sustainment model because as much fun it is to go and talk to a group of police officers for six hours, if they don't retain that and six months later they're still 
not taking ownership, they're still not building relationships, and then what good is us coming in? So I think sustainment's a huge piece in this because what we need now is we need some change in culture. We need some some change in mindset, and the only way to do that is by hitting this over and over again, months, years, so when you look back five years from now and you're still doing the same things you were doing um, in the past. So that is the biggest thing that I'm trying to combat right now is just that's all people want is, hey, I just want a motivational video. Uh, we need a kick in the ass, which we, we do like a pre-event call for these things. And that's a very, very common ask is, hey, we need a kick in the ass. I need my team to get in gear. And uh, I think that's only it's only a Band-Aid. It's only a temporary fix, which is not what we need. Absolutely. I think that's the thing. It's sad, but if you think about a police or fire drill ground, you know, orientation, academy, whatever it is, there's a bunch of very motivated, mostly very fit men and women standing on those diamonds. And so they don't lack motivation. That's what took them to a very selfless profession. I think one of the argument or one of the perspectives we could look at is what are we doing to those people that 10 years later, they're running on fumes, they're deconditioned, they're, you know, wanting to stay in a lazy boy versus train, you know, I mean, there's, there's the environment too. And I, I find that sometimes the emphasis is put on the responder. Well, they need to work out more. They need to, they need to sleep on their days off, you know, and instead of, you know, well, let's create an environment that lifts everyone up, you know, and that's where I think the leadership ownership absolutely is for every individual, but we create an environment that promotes ownership is the other side of the equation. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with various chiefs, people in higher leadership, and I think, I mean, there's a lot of people that are trying to incentivize um, having these physical fitness requirements met, um, which I think there's there's two sides of that. I mean, if I give you money for working out, like that's, I don't know if that's the right path, but um, trying to find the line of getting people invested and making themselves healthy, making themselves fit and making the right decisions. It's, it's extremely hard thing to balance because as much as you want to push, the more you push, people are going to back away. And so um, just trying to navigate that. I, I don't envy a lot of first responders, especially in leadership positions, trying to navigate that world right now because it's, it's, it's just a tough thing to do. Yeah, well, speaking of the, you know, pulling knowledge from all the different countries when you were still in the Marines, um, people like uh, Roger Shai and Kristen Zeman I just had on the show, there are some agencies doing it really, really well. And I think that's the other thing is, you know, we're so siloed in the fire and police that we think we have to reinvent the wheel ourselves. Well, again, that's where humility comes in. And we look at these other departments and be like, all right, we maybe are not doing well in this area. You know, what are you doing? How are you funding that? How are you finding grants for that? So Roger, for example, his uh, department, you get credits for promotion if you max out on the PT test. Beautiful. So now anyone that doesn't want to put in the work in physically is going to be at a disadvantage for that next rank that they go for. So you're not incentivizing it as far as I'll give you 50 bucks if you work out, but you're adding that motivation in a different way, which I thought was was very, very good. Yeah, Chief Shy is awesome. I talked to Chief Shy uh, weekly and what he has up, up in Idaho is, is an amazing thing. And I think it's interesting to talk about the humility aspect in the first responder worlds because we talk about this in business as well. Siloed organizations, I mean, especially working in the same brand, the reason we don't share like, hey, what we're doing good and what we're doing bad is is because of our egos, is because of humility. Because the reason I don't want to share, hey, my department just effed this up, the reason I don't want to share that is because of my ego, because I don't want to look bad, I don't want to admit that I made a mistake. And the reason I don't want to share my success, successes is also my ego, because 
Why should I give out what I'm doing great to other departments? Now the spotlight's going to be shined on them rather than me. Where in the reality is, hey, please fire like we technically have the same mission here. So why not share that? Why not use each other as resources? And I think just like in the military, first responders have a really hard time asking for help. And I think that is something that they we got to we got to combat all the time. And hey, look, my department's struggling with with recruitment. Uh, what is your department doing over here that's successful? Can you maybe help us out? And I think if we can break the stigma of asking help is actually weakness, that's actually not the case. We have the resources. We have successful departments. Like, what better way than to reach out and ask them, "Hey, what are you doing?" So that everybody can can get aligned. I think alignment here across the board is is going to be key. Which you're talking about a campaign. You're talking about years and years that that it's going to take for this to actually get into place. But what better way than to start now and reaching out to brothers and sisters throughout the U.S. that are doing things right or or sharing those those failures that you're going through. Absolutely. Well, no, with the recruitment element, one thing that I've seen, you know, different places now, but even here in Ocala is mentorship, like having these mentorship programs that are taking kids, you know, like older high school age and teaching them, you know, giving them, removing all the barriers to entry. So there's no financial element at all. These kids just show up and they can be trained for police academy. They can be trained for fire academy. They go through their sponsorship spots. You know, there are agencies looking for those kids that have gone through that to then go into their own agencies. So not only are you helping with the recruitment, you're raising the bar and you're reaching in maybe some of those underserved communities that weren't represented 10, 20, 30 years ago. So there's so many elements of that. But like, excuse me, like you said, it takes foresight and it takes let's start today because if you don't start, then, you know, you're going to keep having the same issue over and over again. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, some departments that I've been talking to, they're they're reaching into those just not represented communities because what better way than to to introduce yourself as a police officer as a firefighter to an eight a nine-year-old and then they're on the path whether it's through training whether it's just getting them out to see the station talking them through what you're doing because it shows them like hey we're here to help you get to see both sides here but you're just creating an environment where hey it's okay to be a police officer it's okay to be a firefighter and i think the earlier you can start that the earlier you can showcase what first responders actually do to just the various communities throughout the throughout the world um, that creates an environment where hey it's actually okay to be a police officer when you're 18 but i think you have to start you got to start younger than trying to reach out to kids that are 18 that their whole life they've known that hey don't be fire don't be police that's not the time and place i think when you reach out to those younger communities um that can help bridge that gap and like you said you do get to have some people represented from those places that don't have kind of the service already there. Absolutely. Well, for people listening, what will the first responder specific musters or, you know, whatever term ends up being roll call, um, what will they look like, you know, for, for, you know, that condensed version for people that are already in some sort of paramilitary organization? So yeah, it's it's right now we're playing with just a bunch of different avenues. So um, typically it's just going to be one day. So it'd be either six to eight hours um, with a lunch break in between. But you're diving into almost everything that the muster is. So you get to learn about the Battle of Ramadi, where all the laws of combat were originated from, where Jocko and Leif came back from that deployment and created those. You get to learn about the laws of combat, um, and then you get to listen to direct examples that tie to each principle. So 
Whereas at the muster cover move, you're talking about just teamwork and building relationships. We're going to draw two specific examples in the fire service, EMS police, where, hey, siloed organizations don't make sense. We need to work together. So there's going to be a lot more just um, a lot more stories, a lot more connective um, stuff for the first responders. So it's not just because, I mean, the muster, you're preaching to a crowd of 500 people with with just various backgrounds where you have a first responder event, you have a lot, a lot of like-minded people. And so you do get all the, the normal presentation. You'll get a couple um, one-off kind of muster style talks from the instructors. And then you do have the breakout sessions where you actually get to solve problems, talk about the things that you're going through with a lot of other first responders. And I think that's where kind of the bread and butter is made because if I'm sitting here from Dallas PD and you're over in San Antonio fire and we're talking about, Hey, uh, I don't know how to work with my, my budget with city council, but you do like, it's a great place for just a lot of like-minded people to talk about problems that they're going through. And you have a bunch of people that are bought into extreme ownership that are humble. It just creates an environment where a lot of best practices are shared, which I think can be super beneficial for a community that's trying to, to shift and try to change the culture for the better. Yeah, no, I think it was great. I and mean, even just being at the muster where, like you said, it was a complete diverse background. I had numerous conversations with people from, you know, all over the, the area from different organizations. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. So I can imagine if you have specifically first responders and, and then you have that kind of post event, um, uh, group that then meets virtually after how the knowledge, potential knowledge sharing could be incredible. Hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's the that's the best place is like you said, knowledge knowledge shared. Um, and what better way than a bunch of people that are on the same path and on the same page? There's no better place than that. Absolutely. Well, I want to shift some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. Um, the first one I love to ask: Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. So, the book that I read all the time is this one here dakota meyer into the fire um medal of honor winner marine corps great great first-hand story of his event and then as i mentioned before when i said i didn't read extreme ownership i have trouble reading books now jocko obviously my boss wrote a new book called final spin it's a fictional book based on a bunch of characters in his path and it is it's written in a very unique way almost like poem haiku like it's it's very uh, grasping in terms of captivating, whereas I couldn't put it down, which is never the case. It takes me months to finish a book. So I finished that in a day, which is something that I've never done before. And so those are kind of two of my big ones. And then I think um, the last one here, I recommend this to anybody that works in a company is Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Um, it just covers... I can even pull a thing, pull a chapter out of here. Any problem that you have as a leader, you basically just, it's just a turn to, you get newly promoted. How do you, how do you handle taking over a team when you're newly promoted? And it's just like a how-to guide to handle leadership problems. Um, so I use this book all the time, pretty much every single day when I'm working with different companies going through, through leadership challenges. So those are kind of my top three that I, I've been diving into the last couple months. Brilliant. Did you ever read Extreme Ownership in the end? I did after <laughs> <much> convincing. <laughs> All right. Well, the next question, is there a movie 
and or a documentary that you love to recommend? Ooh, a movie? Documentary. Um, well, my favorite movie, I guess, so Generation Kill, um, my top one. Being a big football person, the movie The Replacements, that's probably my all-time favorite movie. I can quote that movie from front to back, which it's not the – it's a little cheesy to say the least. Um, And documentary. um, You know, I don't have one off the top of my head. I don't want to just throw one out there because it wouldn't wouldn't be real. So I don't really think I have one. All right, no worries at all. Yeah, Generation Kill has come up a whole bunch of times. I just had one of the actors who um, portrayed James Mattis um, in the in the film, and I'm going to be getting uh, Rudy Reyes on. So he, oh, wow. yeah, That's so awesome. that'll be a great conversation because he not only portrayed himself, he was actually there. So that'll be a very unique experience. <laughs> all right. Well, then next question. Speaking of great people, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? So we have a new uh, member of the team. His name's Carlos Mendez. Um, he came on board. He's been running the FTXs with JP and myself. So he was in the SEAL teams for the last 22 years, just retired. He was enlisted and an officer um, and then got into the business world. But um, I've been doing a lot of stuff with him. We, uh, we do a lot of tandem workshops and whatnot, and we kind of balance each other out. Um, I'm kind of the stern one, and he's kind of the, the level-headed person. Um, but he just brings a very unique background and it's extremely empowering when you have somebody with 22 years as asking me how to do things. I think there's no, no bigger power in the world. So he's been a tremendous influence on me as a person um, and as a leader the last couple months that I've, that I've gotten to know him. Brilliant. We'll have to make that work. I've got Leif coming on at some point. I've got to schedule it yet. And that will be, that'll be all the, the first four. It was JP, Dave, Jocko, then, um, then yourself and then Leif. So, but yeah, I'm always looking for for great people, and he sounds like yet another one. Oh, and of course, Jason Gardner. I want to mention Jason's been on three times, so I don't want to forget to mention him. Um, all right. Well, then the last question before we make sure um, everyone knows where to find you: What do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Well, as you probably can hear, there's craziness going on in the background, so I have to decompress all the time. Um, I think for me, it's just finding time to, I have a garage gym, so I don't have any excuse not to work out. So that's my, my biggest thing. I zone out, I listen to, to music and I, I work out just as much as and often as I can. Um, I like to be ready. I, I work out with a lot of, when we travel, just a lot of people that I, I've never met before. And so I always like to be very versatile in what I do. So I always like to be able to, if anybody asks me to do said workout challenge or anything crazy, I'm always like willing and able. So that's where I kind of find like my zone in the gym is I'm always trying to throw stuff that I can't do. CrossFit's been huge as of late because there's a lot of stuff that I can't do and that's extremely frustrating. So I'm a big uh, workout workout advocate, running, working out, hiking, whatever the case, anything that I can get out of the house. And uh, I even bring the minions along with me. They like to climb on all my gear and it's just my, my little safe haven out there. Beautiful. Well, I like that philosophy. I do the same, you know, with uh, Tough Mudders and Spartan Races and even the, the Chad workout on Veterans Day is to me, you don't train for it. You test your training by doing it and then you find out if it works or not. 
Hundred percent. Yeah, I just did try the other day, and that's a that's a gnarly one. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, then, if people want to learn more about you, they want to find Echelon Front. They want to find when the uh, the new first responder element is going to be released. Where are the best places for all of those? Um, so echelonfront.com, obviously. Um, I'm only on Instagram because I can only manage one social media account. It's just Cody.Gandy um, on Instagram. And then the first responder stuff, we're creating a web page on, on Echelon Front. So right now we have our first responder live webinars monthly on there. And then we're creating a place to put in those uh, the Idaho event and the Dallas event um, and those to come. So there'll be a link on there where you can actually register and then you'll get kind of uh, monthly or biweekly emails on like news and what's going to happen in the following month. So those would be the places to to locate myself and any information on Echelon Front or the first responder stuff. Beautiful. Well, Cody, I just want to say thank you. Um, I know, like I said, we took a few months to make it happen, but it's always for a reason. The universe always makes these things happen when they're supposed to. So I'm so glad that we're about to get, you know, a first responder element of the muster again. It's going to be amazing. Um, and you know, obviously the books are incredible themselves. But I just want to say thank you so much for taking an hour and a half to tell your story today. No, I appreciate it. I know, I know four months is, I just been so crazy and I know you've been just grinding out podcasts left and right, but I just want to thank you for what, what you do and, and the podcast that you put out. Cause it's been extremely helpful for me listening to a lot of different perspectives on just mental, physical fitness and everything in between. And so what you have is extremely powerful in any way that I could help get more exposure to your platform and the people that you bring on. Um, I'm just, I'm just innate. So anything I can do, let me know. 